0: This podcast is sponsored by Space Labs Healthcare. Excessive alarms put patient comfort and safety at risk. Space Labs Healthcare delivers a quieter, smarter notification system to minimize false positive alarms while providing comprehensive alarm history data. Welcome to the Amy Podcast, produced by the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, in partnership with the studios of Healthcare Tech Talk. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Amy Podcast. I'm Terry Baker. You know, we all struggle with sensory overload text, emails, phone calls, and many other types of messages and electronic signals coming our way every day in our personal life. But that kind of sensory overload gets dangerous when you're talking about being on a clinical floor in a clinical unit of a hospital. And to that end, the Joint Commission and many other organizations, such as Amy, have been focusing on the issue of clinical alarm management. Today, we have two great guests here to talk to us about the issue and how organizations might take on this important challenge. First, we have Maria Savak, DNP, RN, FAAN. Maria is the Director of Policy Management and Integration for the Johns Hopkins Health System, where she has worked as a nurse leader since 1986. She has extensive experience in cardiology, intensive care, and progressive care nursing. Her research and translation of evidence has focused on alarm management strategies for hospitalized patients. Her interrogative review on monitor alarm fatigue was the recipient of the 2012 Research Paper of the Year by the Journal of Biomedical Instrumentation and Technology. Her article on Monitor Alarm Fatigue, Standardizing Use of Physiologic Monitors and Decreasing Nuisance Alarms, has been cited over 100 times and is frequently used as the basis for instituting monitor changes in hospitals today. Through her leadership, the John Hopkins Hospital Alarm Committee, which she has chaired since 2006, won the 7th Annual Health Device Achievement Award in 2012 from the ECRI Institute for their submission on clinical alarms and improving patient safety. Additionally, she has led the development of alarm notification technology, which uses escalation algorithms and closed-loop communication to assure alarm accountability. Dr. Savak is the national chairperson for the AMI Alarm System Steering Committee. She has presented nationally and internationally on her work. Next, we have Ronald M. Wyatt, MD, MHA. Dr. Wyatt is the patient safety officer and medical director at the Joint Commission. In this role, Dr. Wyatt directs data management and event analysis in the Office of Quality, and he collaborates in the development of the National Patient Safety Goals, Sentinel event alerts, and quick safety publications. Dr. Wyatt leads the Joint Commission's efforts to address health and healthcare disparity and equality. Additional areas of interest include professionalism and workplace safety in healthcare. Previously, he was the director of the Patient Safety Analysis Center at the Defense Health Agency. Dr. Wyatt is a board-certified internist with over 20 years of practice experience and is licensed in the state of Alabama. He was the George W. Merrick Fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in 2009 and 2010. Dr. Wyatt earned his medical degree and Executive Master of Science Health Administration from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He completed the Harvard School of Public Health Program in Clinical Effectiveness in 2009. Welcome to the show, Maria and Ron. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. So let's start with a broad overview. Clinical alarm management can sound like a pretty wonky topic, but it's actually one of the more tangible, life-or-death patient safety issues out there, In a nutshell, we have a growing number of medical devices with lots of alarms and alerts. What does this mean for the patients, nurses, and the clinical environment in general? Maria, can you start
1: us off? Oh, sure. Um, Alarms are intended to tell us when something needs attention. Monitor alarms, in particular, sound when a vital sign threshold is breached, even momentarily, So for instance, when someone is walking to the bathroom and their heart rate goes up momentarily or they are coughing or being suctioned and their pulse oximeter drops momentarily. So most of the time, these parameters auto-correct without any intervention. It's these type of alarms that are viewed as nuisance alarms because they really don't drive an action. And these occur hundreds if not thousands of times. They go off daily uh, on the unit and they serve to desensitize the staff. And as a result, important alarms may be missed. So to answer your question in terms of what is it, uh, how does it impact patients? Patients need quiet to help in their healing process. So noise from alarms creates an unpleasant environment and it disrupts patients' sleep and it causes anxiety. Sure. Families lose trust in care providers when they don't respond to alarms in a timely manner. And for staff, the noise creates an unpleasant work environment and it reduces their work performance. Staff can develop stress symptoms such as headaches and it, it can distract them from what they're doing and thereby potentially even make a mistake.
2: Ron, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, yeah, so from the uh, perspective here at the Joint Commission, uh, you, you know, back in 2014, uh, there was a decision, uh, even prior to that, to look at ways to address alarm safety, alarm management. And the reason is that, as Maria pointed out, a persistent and frequent problem. And uh, when there's a frequent and persistent problem, uh, at the Joint Commission, we look to see whether or not it's time to address it in a more specified way. So, at the right. Joint Commission, that led to the development of a national patient safety goal. And, okay. and na- national patient safety goals have been around since uh, the early 2000, 2003. So, when when we say frequent and persistent in patient safety, that means here's an issue that is causing harm and even death to patients. So, when we look at when we looked at the data. That comes into the Joint Commission. What we saw over uh, about a five-year period, from 2010 to 2015, is that there were about 140 sentinel events, and these were events that led to patient death. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was about 140 of those. Uh, so you can see that that is a a significant problem. And and what amplifies that even more is that we know that this is a vastly underreported problem, uh, and it occurs in all healthcare. Uh, settings. Wow. So for instance, we think that probably that 140 or so deaths is likely 3% or less of the actual events that we call Sentinel oh, wow. and then when we look at well what and where uh, are these events occurring, they are again across the board. We see events related to uh, anesthesia, delays in treatment, when patients elope or kidnap different from a hospital, maternal death, a lot of them are related to the medical equipment can lead to medication errors, Mm -hmm. post-op complications, perinatal death. Uh, So it's a broad spectrum, ventilated death, so it's a broad spectrum of what we call event categories that really does cause patient harm. So we had to, in some way, emphasize the acuity of this problem and that it was, in fact, and is a huge patient safety risk when alarms aren't being managed appropriately.
0: So many organizations, including Amy and the Joint Commission, have taken steps to try to help hospitals get a better handle on the management of clinical alarms. Ron, could you tell us about the Joint Commission's new January 1 requirement for hospitals? What are they now expected to
2: do? Sure. So if we go back to the National Patient Safety Goal, and it's National Patient Safety Goal 06, and what it says is that organizations, accredited organizations, now must make improvements to ensure that alarms on medical equipment are heard and responded to on time uh, and to improve the safety of clinical alarm systems. So now that this is a national patient safety goal, that means when organizations have their triennial survey or even in a uh, case where you may have an unannounced four-call survey uh, related to alarm safety, then the elements of performance, this standard, will be surveyed at that organization. So, uh, we phased this in from 2014, when we asked organizations to establish alarm safety as a priority for the uh, credit organization. Then we we said the next step is going to be to establish the most important alarm signals that that organization needs to manage. And now that we're in February, as of January 1st of 2016, the National Patient Safety Goal is: send to organizations, you must educate your staff. You must educate licensed independent practitioners, and this includes the medical staff, uh, about the purpose and proper operation of alarm systems and which ones they are responsible for. So that is is how this has been phased in. So now, beginning in, in January of this year, when surveyors come on site, they will be looking to see what your process and plan has been to be in compliance with
0: the National Patient Safety Goal. This seems like a good time to highlight a new resource from the Amy Foundation, a compendium on clinical alarm management. Maria, you worked on the compendium. Could you please tell us the goals of the compendium and how it might help hospitals?
1: Sure. Um, The Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, also known as AMI, gathered from around the country 25 of the leading hospitals who have tackled alarm issues. um, And also, they brought or invited industry partners to come and sit at the table and say, where do we go from here and how do we help the 5,000 hospitals in the United States and really help hospitals all over the, the world to tackle this issue on alarm management? And so what we did is we designed a toolkit that will help others in meeting the Joint Commission National Patient Safety Goal. So if you haven't seen this document, you need to go online and pull it up. It's a 68-page document which provides specific tips and it outlines practices that are already being used by leading uh, institutions such as my own institution, the Johns Hopkins Hospital. So some of the information in the compendium includes a call to action to manage alarms, how to gather data and measure the problem, because you really can't correct something that you don't really know what the problem is. So it's really important to get some metrics and figure that out. Uh, We also share best practices that others have used to reduce alarm burden. And also, you know, how to develop policies and procedures for this important problem and how to educate and build and maintain competency within your staff. And finally, there is a set of monitor parameters which is based on population. So this could be used as a guide by institutions in deciding how best to establish parameter thresholds on monitors for different populations, such as ICU or telemetry units or intermediate care units.
0: Wow. Very neat. And I want to make sure our listeners know that that is available as a free resource on the AMI website at o r g. So... To both of you, how far along are we in having effective clinical alarm practices in most healthcare facilities? It's a topic that's been discussed for many years now. Are you satisfied
2: with the progress? No, we, we are not. Okay, uh, And again, that's the reason that we said that it's time to have a National Patient Safety Goal, and then the Joint Commission followed that up with uh, something of an alert number 50. Uh, again, to emphasize, highlight, and raise awareness about what A serious and critical issue this is. So let me give an example. I was visiting with a a very large award-winning hospital in in the Midwest. And during that visit, I I was given a tour of the emergency department by the physician who was the director of the emergency department. And as we walked through that emergency department, there was just a room full of noise and sound Mm -hmm. in the background. So much so that for me, it almost interfered with our conversation. Wow. And I said to him, what are you doing about the noise in here? His immediate reaction was what noise? I'm sure, desensitized. So 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 that's so that it acutely highlights the problem mm-hmm. uh, that here he was in that environment and was so sensitized to it that what I heard as noise loud enough to interfere with with a normal conversation, he was not aware of it. Wow. So I yeah. asked myself how in the world then could he pick up on A critical alarm when he is uh, so desensitized to the environment. I'll stop there.
1: Yes, and I'd like to add that this is a journey, and it can't be solved overnight, and it can't be owned by one discipline. It has got to be a system and a culture change, and it's an awareness that it's not acceptable to have all of these alarms going on with no one taking action. So the National Patient Safety Goal has done a tremendous amount to heighten awareness, but it's not something that can be solved overnight. It's something that it needs to be studied and it can't be a single solution for The hospital. It needs to be taken as a solution based on the environment that people work. So the solution for an emergency room is going to be a little bit different than an intensive care unit and that's going to be different than a general care unit or an operating room. So what we need to do is gather the right stakeholders at the table to take it bit by bit until they tackle their whole hospital. I don't think it's a good idea to look at it as as, um, as a health system. Right now, I think you need to look at it as an individual hospital first to say, what is our problem? And where. what are those important things that we're going to manage? And then you might be able to take it out as a whole health system to say, how can we do this? But for us to say that we can put certain measures in place, there isn't a lot of research evidence to say what those measures are. It really is more quality improvement. And it it is things that are best practices, but we need to really see if those work in the environment that we work on, the type of unit that we work with, the type of Um, you know how hospitals are all different in how they're built, whether it's private rooms or single rooms, or if it's a ward type environment, all of those things need to be factored in along with whether you have monitor technicians or whether or not you have proper staffing to manage this. So it it really is a journey and it needs to be um, studied and people need to look at their data in making educated decisions. The other thing I would add is that the equipment that's used, we have to remember that hospitals invest a lot of money into that equipment, millions of dollars. And so for them to correct a problem, we can't just make it an equipment-related solution, because your equipment is going to stay with you for 10 or 15 years. So you've got to look at how to manage that burden of alarms with the existing equipment that you have, and not just go out for a new solution, I'm going to buy this new equipment and solve this problem because that's not mm-hmm. going to work. It's going mm-hmm. to require us to do multiple things over uh, a period of time, and we have to pick what those best solutions are for our institutions.
2: Yeah, and I think the other really critical point, and, and you know, the, that l- the last points that Maria made are just so, so important uh, because we do see organizations that go out and throw millions of dollars at a problem. And what we see here at the Joint Commission, in many cases, is that organizations don't react or respond until there's this bad outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when we go into why did it happen, what we find out is there had been multiple near misses close calls, signals, if I can you know, mm-hmm. use that phrase, no pun intended, right. that there were signals of, of this potential failure that the organization knew about. And for whatever reason, a lot of it has to do with culture, is not reporting it. Uh, so that's what I meant at the outset about uh, it's a vastly underreported problem. And many times staff uh, care team members won't report it uh, because the culture is not such that it's safe for them to report it. So part of solving this problem, as Maria said, is it has to be an interdisciplinary approach, you know, engineering, housekeeping, everyone should be involved with with solving this. But I think one of the core issues here is that when care team members whoever it may be need to report when there is a, a problem and then the organization can respond I will say in a more proactive way
0: and i appreciate the term you know saying this is a journey because that you just have to start making progress on it i've heard people talk about once they reviewed the data as you mentioned they should that even modest adjustments to alarm thresholds reduced alerts by thousands and thousands of alerts is this a case where you know don't let the perfect get in the way of the pretty good so that you can start moving forward?
1: Yes, I, I agree with that. And and what I would say is that what we have found in our own institution is that targeting those alarms that are non-actionable, even like what you said is so important, just making a one, one change, you know, might make a big difference in that institution's alarms. And that's what we have found. Just looking at our data, and let's say it's your pulse oximeter. It goes off all the time. Just making... A uh, one or two changes, modest changes, will not decrease safety, actually will improve safety and will decrease the number of non-actionable alarms.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important, and I'll get a bit more granular with the National Patient Safety Goal okay. to talk about what those things are that organizations should do and recognize that these are the, the minimums that an organization should be asked to do. Uh, and one is, again, what are the clinically appropriate alarms, Uh, when and who can disable the alarms, what parameters can be changed, who can set or change those parameters, uh, and who's monitoring and responding to what is expected around alarm management. So what's the biggest holdup to more progress? Is it
0: a matter of training, device design, a failure to embrace systems thinking in healthcare, all of the above, or something else?
1: Well, I feel like there's a disconnect between the manufacturer, the standards. And the needs of clinicians. And, and Amy has really done a great job at, uh, in trying to bring those groups all together. But until we can have the manufacturer designing things based on the needs of the cl- clinicians and standards committee recognizing what those needs are, I think we're, we're going to continue in this path.
2: Ron, any thoughts on that issue? I think there's kind of some recommendations, I'll put it that way, and and we've gone over some of them. Mm -hmm. And and I would, again, say start with a leadership that is engaged Mm -hmm. and is supporting the effort. That is so critical. And if leadership is present and supporting the effort, then we'll we'll start to make progress. Um, So that's part of the the culture uh, change that has to take place. If leadership is inviting in a multidisciplinary group of people uh, as Maria said, to measure and analyze what the problem is, and then to look at that data carefully in order to make the improvements. We always say, well, not necessarily every um, change is an improvement. So use the data to make those improvements. Use a risk assessment approach to address the problem. And and this, I think, still has to be done with a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there should be a, a, you know, what we call rapid cycle improvement approach to helping solve this problem. And it's not a one-off. It's not a checklist. It's not do these things, uh, go through this training, and we'll come back and check on you in several months from now. That is a um, path to continued failure uh, and revisit the alarm policy. And part of innovation is is redesigning based on what you are finding in your organization. Uh, And then the last point I think I've already made is sustain the the effort, sustain the educational effort, continue to, to do a risk assessment of that organization, of that particular setting, because as Maria said, it may be different in, in, and it is different between the, the emergency department and a med surge floor and the OR or, or in amateur surgery uh, or you know, whatever that setting is. So I know we talked
0: uh, earlier about the fact you can't wait until you get new equipment. You can't sort of make a big purchase and solve all your problems. But let's turn our, our discussion a little bit to the role of device design a bit what can manufacturers do to design products that make for a better environment for patients and clinicians, especially nurses?
1: So I I know that manufacturers have to follow standards. And so right now, we really need to relook at the standards to make sure that those standards are in the best interest of the clinical staff. But what we need in terms of clinicians is fewer but better alarms. We need uh, alarms that are like combination alarms that they look at multiple parameters before calling uh, a situation. So for instance, if somebody... Right now, alarms are threshold-based. And so if someone... Is let's say the monitor for some reason thinks that the patient is in asystole, but clearly there's an arterial waveform or there's a pleth from a pulse oximeter. That patient is not in asystole, and that alarm shouldn't call as asystole because it should be able to look at that and see and make a smart decision that this is not asystole. So we need fewer. But better alarms and they, and we need to really look at uh, multi parameters and also really look at visual cues versus audible cues more for those lower priority things rather than having an alarm continuously, which creates noise and distraction. Mm -hmm. Could it be something that's more visual for a practitioner to see because it's a low priority? It's something that maybe requires attention, but it's not immediate attention and really save the audible alarms for those things that are really very, very important.
2: Sure. Any thoughts on that, Ron? Maria's done such an excellent job of covering this. Some, some additional points would be for manufacturers have alarms that can be customized to the individual patient or even to the uh, a patient population. Another thing that I believe alarm manufacturers should do is really put a stronger emphasis on organizational training. In some cases, when we look at root causes of sentinel events, there's been inconsistent training even from the manufacturer okay. uh, or training on how to interpret even the existing alarm uh, uh, signals. I think another thing is equipment manufacturers work on how to integrate the alarms in with other medical devices and then how t- the staff will know or not know when there's a, an equipment malfunction or even a failure. So, for instance, uh, another uh, – just a brief story – uh, my sister was in a in hospital a couple of years ago and she has a neurological disorder, which made her a falls risk. Uh, she went for a CAT scan, transport brought her back. She then went to take a shower. Uh, when she returned to her bed, there was an alarm and I came to visit and could hear the alarm as I walked down the hallway. By the time I got there, there were two care team members and an entire family in the room trying to figure out where the alarm was coming from. And no one could figure it out. Wow! The care team, the nurse, the tech, the nurse manager could not figure it out. They called engineering. The person engineer, engineering walked in the room and said, "It's a bed alarm," <laughs> and he was the only one that knew that. Wow! <laughs> and wow. there was a newer bed with a with the with it was a newer bed with a different alarm. And here you have the nurse manager that did not know what the alarm was in that room. So you you think about the alarm type, it's audible, but you're in a a setting where you can't really understand where that alarm is coming from. So if, if a nurse manager tech, nurse transport knew that that signal was the bed alarm in a, in a patient who was at a high falls risk, right? right. then you're protecting that patient and, and you're relieving, as Maria said, some of the anxiety that patients and families have around alarms. Right. So we've touched on it a bit, the challenge of setting the
0: right parameters to trigger alarms. Is there more we can expand to kind of help demonstrate this in practical terms?
1: Well, you know, it all boils down to noise. Versus signal. Noise is the false, non actionable alarm, and signal is the alarm that you take action on. And so that, you know, we can set default parameters which are safe. For uh, on your monitor. The, the, that's what your clinical engineering department and your leadership group sets. So when you turn the monitor on, it's at those safe limits. However, there are times when patients require more customization of alarms. And so, for instance, let me give you an example. Let's say the safe limit for heart rate is 50 on a unit, but my mother comes in and she has atrial fibrillation at a slow rate and she's always at a rate of about 45 or 48 when she sleeps. There's no reason for that alarm to go off all night long so that she can't sleep. So that's where you have to really use your customization and decide that it's just noise and it's not signal. You're not doing anything for that, 40, that heart rate of 48. It's alarming that the threshold has been breached but you have to use your critical thinking to say this is just noise it's not signal so i need to adapt this and so that's what we mean by getting the right parameters and the right settings for at an individual or customized basis
2: okay would you like to expand on that ron sure and I'm maybe a bit more general ray and some of these recommendations come you know come from amy the joint commission uh some and work with the Equi institute and and uh typically always go back to leadership, 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 and I say that because when we look at sentinel events and other harm, patient harm events, the leading root causes of failure are uh, leadership, uh, communication, and human factors, mm-hmm. and when we looked at 2015, they're the same three, so if we start again in, in this problem with leadership, leadership has to ensure that there is a process in place that there is a mechanism to respond in high-risk areas, that the organization has prepared an inventory of the alarm equipment, the medical devices that are used in the most high-risk areas with the most high-risk clinical conditions that are present in the organization, that there are established guidelines for those settings, uh, that the guidelines then call for tailoring, as Maria just mentioned, tailoring those alarm settings and the limits for that individual patient, Uh, and then a continuous process of inspecting the equipment, checking the equipment, maintaining the alarm equipped devices so that the organization, the team knows that these devices are accurate, that the alarms are appropriate, that they're operating properly, that the alarms are detectable, meaning someone didn't come along and, and decrease or change the setting on that alarm, and that this is based on the manufacturer's recommendations. Why do I say that? Because when the, from the Joint Commission, when surveyors come on site, they will ask you, are you following the manufacturer's recommendations with regard to risk levels, and sure. et cetera? So, given that this is the
0: uh, Amy podcast, we have a lot of healthcare technology management professionals, such as clinical engineers and biomedical equipment technicians listening. What role can they play in helping their hospitals get a handle on device alarm management?
1: We are all here to support good patient care and safe patient care. And so, clinical engineers and biomedical technicians need to really know what's going on in terms of what the clinical staff need and what the patient needs are. And so we need to get them to get to know the clinician staff it should be that I can call a unit and say to them, who's your biomedical engineer? And they could say to me, oh, it's John. And they feel comfortable going to John about any problem that they have on their unit. So I feel that we need to have this interprofessional camaraderie so that we know that we can contact clinical engineers for anything, number one. And that those clinical engineers need to be knowledgeable about the device and know how to get that information. In our own institution, our clinical engineers have set up a demo lab so that we can test functionality before we even put things out on the unit. We can go down and we can test it and say, what is the impact of this on alarm management before we put it on patients? And also, I know you know clinical engineers up in the Boston area who have developed devices that they use for educational purposes and it's like on a rolling cart and they can use that for training purposes and developing competencies. I like to use the clinical engineers to suggest ways that we can reduce alarm burden. If it wasn't for our clinical engineers and, uh, and talking with them and saying, what can we do? This alarm keeps on going off thousands of times a day. What can we do? And it's them who look at it and say, oh, well, you can put a delay on this or you can change the setting to this and you will have so many fewer alarms. So I think it's really important and imperative that the clinical engineers get to know the staff, get to know what the needs are, and be available for answering those really important questions. When I have a problem with a medical device, what I don't want is somebody to send me up the 400-page document for me to read as a clinician because that I I don't even know where to start. I need for the clinical engineers to be able to suggest ways to improve things.
0: Well, thank you for that. So if I gave you one wish, what is the one thing about
2: clinical alarm management that you wish you could change immediately? Let's start with you, Ron. Sure. I think the the one thing I've mentioned a couple of times now is to have leadership actively engaged with this issue, Mm -hmm. that the leadership knows the data and is present Uh, when addressing alarm safety with the team, that leadership understands, as Maria has mentioned, the importance of having an interdisciplinary team that is working on this problem and that that team remains intact and functions going forward, you know, not on a periodic basis. That makes sense.
1: I'm sorry that I only get one wish because I have a number of wishes, (laughs) but the one thing that I think could help institutions today immediately is if they had the ability to get data to support how they go about changing what they're doing because i i see one of the biggest barriers that hospitals face today is they simply don't have data to be able to see what's going on they're using intuition you know in some cases they're going up and doing observation but it it just seems it seems almost just uh, unbelievable that we have equipment that you can't even get the data out of to see what is alarming so that you can make educated decisions about this. So, you know, if you're only giving me one wish, (laughs) then I wish that the devices that we purchase automatically come with some way of getting data out of it easily without purchasing additional software and without having to get bio, uh, uh, information technologists or biomed to do sophisticated programs. I, I feel like all medical devices should be able to get the data out of it easily.
0: Yes, that's a challenge that manufacturers will hopefully help uh, resolve soon and will get better and better. I think we've seen some advancement in that, but uh, can't come fast enough for such an important important need. Again, this is a topic and an issue that I've had a lot of interest in and have been looking forward to this episode for quite a while. I really appreciate the two of you joining us today, Maria and uh, Ron, for coming in. Your insights uh, are really appreciated. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Our, my pleasure.
0: My pleasure as well. Thank you very much. And we'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. We hope you found this discussion about clinical alarm management valuable to your efforts at meeting this important patient safety goal. Special thanks to our sponsor, Space Labs Healthcare, delivering a quieter and smarter notification system to minimize false positive alarms and to provide comprehensive alarm history data. Space Labs Healthcare. For this episode of the Amy Podcast, I'm Terry Baker.